This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, June 9th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Mountain Village addresses its ailing trees, sheriff masters recognized by peace officers, yeehaw, 30 years in the Wild West, and a mountain weather forecast. But first, the San Miguel County Coroner's Office is reporting Anthony Shorty passed away early yesterday morning. Shorty was a father and husband from Montezuma Creek, Utah, and he worked here in town at Telluride Gravel. He passed shortly arriving at work on June 8th. Shorty was 54 years old. He is survived by his wife, his siblings, and his five children. Crippen Funeral Homes will attend to services. have a lot of trees dying there's look around you see there's a lot of saplings everywhere um, so there's a good seed source out there and, and a lot of regeneration and, and as long as you have that you, you, you will continue to have Rodney trees. Walters is showing me around the familiar terrain of Mountain Village the open meadows and pockets of forest land stretching alongside the main boulevard and filling in the boundaries of the golf course to the north Walters has an eye attuned to the landscape specifically its trees. He draws my attention towards an aspen sapling, pointing out evidence of elk browsing. See where it's, it's all bushy like this because they've been eating on it, and every time they eat, it kind of sprouts. He's making an aspen bush, but it's not becoming an aspen tree. Um, and you can see the damage. Nearby, Walters points to a bright blue plastic tube standing about four feet tall and looking almost like a public art installation. Inside the narrow tube is a tiny, slender tree. You can see it's working pretty well. It's got leaves in there. Uh, so it's just this protection system. Walters is the town forester for Mountain Village and has been in the position just short of a year. The blue aspen tubes are one of the town's efforts to protect trees stressed by a whole variety of factors. In many cases, the health of these stands is in a state of decline. And this decline is part of the natural process, uh, which has also been accelerated by the trend of, of warming temperatures and three periods of major drought in the last 20 years. When you have drought, it stresses the trees and predisposes them to other conditions, insects and diseases. The issue is not unique to Mountain Village, nor even the Telluride region. Across Colorado and beyond, the rise of spruce budworm, balsam bark beetle, Douglas fir beetle, and a whole number of other pests are causing stress. But, Walter says, addressing those pests alone misses the greater threats to the region's forests. Someone looks out and they see dying trees and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, the insects are killing them. Well, yes, they are, but that's a secondary condition. The primary... The primary factor was that we had this major drought. It stressed the trees to the point of strain, which means it can't really come back. It kind of holds on for a long time, but it doesn't really come back. And so people aren't understanding the larger picture and the time frame for which these processes take place. That bigger picture complicates management efforts. Instead of addressing a beetle invasion, for example, Walters faces a whole number of trends, many climate-related, which are contributing to tree decline. The, the things that need to happen are, are more in a preventative nature. And 
Um, I have a, a Colorado State Forest Service health report that was saying that um, the Telluride area was an area of concern, um, and that was 20 years ago. So the truth is, the time to do something is 20 years ago. We can't do that, so the next best time to do something is now. That something varies from species to species. There are those blue tubes, of course, protecting the aspen from elk. Walters can also work to thin forests and remove trees in order to mimic natural processes such as fire and encourage the forests to regenerate. Another defense being rolled out addresses the area's Douglas fir trees. Driving around, Walters spots an example. That big leaning tree is a duck fir. Oh. Uh, they, they're just super hardy. They used to be considered to be kind of bulletproof, like, but now that, you know, but now we're seeing those die too. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, we thought that was the solution and now it's like, well, maybe, but maybe not. We don't know. Like, we just don't know. The trouble with Doug fir? It's the Doug fir beetle, which has ravaged trees elsewhere in Colorado. Mountain Village has rolled out over a thousand MCH packets, plastic pouches pinned to Doug fir trunks, which release a pheromone to ward off the beetle. The town of Telluride is embarking on a similar mission, peppering the packets from up on the Weeby to the extent of Bear Creek and beyond. Walters is measured in his approach, recognizing the difficulty of maintaining healthy trees in a place where the human and climate landscapes are actively developing and changing. So we engage a lot in what we call adaptive management, where we try things and then, you know, and then we try something different and we observe and we see what works and we observe what doesn't work and we just we keep trying and, and, um, and it's a really dynamic process because your natural systems are always in a state of change. So you're, you also have to always be in a state of change. While Mountain Village is just one tiny pocket in a vast landscape, the diligent attention of Walters and area homeowners make it stand out as an example of urban forestry in action. But if the fate of a forest rests on its ecology and surroundings, Walters says the people of Mountain Village and their development and management choices are certainly part of that environment, part of the complex world stressing or salvaging area trees. With 42 years serving as sheriff under his belt, currently serving out his 12th consecutive term in the position, Bill Masters has certainly dedicated a lifetime to his work leading the peace officers of San Miguel County. This spring, his work was recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the West Colorado Peace Officers Association. Based in Montrose, the association has offered training and professional support to officers all over the Western Slope since its founding in 1958. KOTO News took the opportunity to catch up with Sheriff Masters and couldn't help but ask, what's it like to be recognized for a lifetime of achievement? You know, it's kind of embarrassing, quite frankly. I, I, I'm, I'm humbled by, by receiving it. Uh, I wasn't uh, expecting it to... to uh, receive it this year I think a part of it is a is a lifetime achievement award and I have spent my whole adult life being a peace officer in western Colorado so if you stay with a job long enough you're probably going to get a lifetime achievement award you might get one from KOTO someday yeah so just got to stay around for 50 years and um 
it's uh, it, it certainly is an is an honor uh, to to receive it uh, from my peers. Yes, well, perhaps I am uh, well on my way to a Coda Lifetime Achievement Award, but nevertheless, fifty years of dedication to anything uh, is quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you. It's uh, I think it's forty eight years, probably today. I can't remember the exact day I started with the town of Telluride as a deputy marshal, and I spent a uh, a year on the street because uh, the town didn't really want to pay my salary, which was 400 a month, um, to send me to the academy. And the, the thought of that was uh, we're going to see if this person really likes it and whether we like him and before we spend that money to send them to the academy. Um, there were some disastrous moments during that time in Colorado where uh, people who hadn't had their academy training committed some some very uh, um, poor acts because they weren't trained, and um, they uh, ended up changing that law where now you have to go to the academy before you're left out on the street. So uh, I think it's much better now. And over the time, there must have been some some other big shifts in how you approach your work. What changes stand out, and how do you think about your duty and the duty of the sheriff's office today? Certainly the whole um, business, the whole peacekeeping business has changed a lot. And I keep using that word peacekeeper because that's what we really are. That's what we're licensed in the state of Colorado to be. We are licensed peace officer. There is no such thing as a law enforcement officer in the Colorado statutes, yet most people call their agency law enforcement. If you call yourself a law enforcement officer, you're probably, um, that's what you're going to, your primary mission you're going to think is to go and enforce these laws. And there's 40,000 or laws, somewhere around thirty to 40,000 laws. I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, in Colorado, there's 400 traffic violation laws. I mean, what could they be? You know, I mean, we just we just can't uh, imagine. I think we are more of a peacekeeping force or an order maintenance force. What are some of the biggest challenges facing the sheriff's office today? Number one right now is uh, recruiting. Um, it is an unpopular occupation now. And I've seen this happen before. When I first started in the, um, the late 60s, in uh, Los Angeles, I wasn't an officer. I was a civilian worker for the LAPD. It was very unpopular then. You know, there was a lot of protests going on about the uh, war and other social injustice. So yeah, it's, it's it's nothing really new. So um, that's a big uh, factor. And I, I don't see the long-term solution for that. Oh, it, a lot of it is money generated. We have to pay the deputies more money and pay them a wage that would allow them to live in uh, the East County, unless they have something else coming in or they have they bring money with them and, and uh, have a trust fund or something like that. And that's not the type of people that we usually get applying at the sheriff's office. Are there any other lessons you've learned in a lifetime of achievement which you'd like to share with us today? I think it's a, it's a very human um, uh, business, involves uh, recruiting the right people, training the, the people properly to do the right thing and, and um, having it more on a human level 
understanding that humans will make mistakes, understanding that things might go go wrong, but still it's much better to have an officer that, that is trained properly and recruited properly and does the right thing. That was Sheriff Bill Masters sharing a handful of his reflections on the occasion of his recognition by the Western Slope peace officers. Yeehaw! Wild West Fest is upon us. But what exactly does this mysterious event entail? KOTO reporter Grace Richards ventured inside the Sheridan Opera House to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 2023 Boys and Girls Club Hope Dance Team. Those were the sounds of a rehearsal for a Native American traditional hoop dance that kids ages 13 through 18 have been practicing during the week of Wild West Fest. Started in 1991, Wild West Fest is an empowering week of activities for 37 children from boys and girls clubs across the country. I spoke with the Sheridan Arts Foundation Young People's Theater Artistic Director, Leah Heidenreich, these kids who work really hard back home, they're leaders in their local Boys and Girls Club. They, you know, do a lot for their community, they excel in school, and then the Boys and Girls Clubs will then select those kids to come here and just kind of give them a week to take on completely new experiences, try things they've never done before, and in a place that is nothing like anything they've ever been to before. Leah gave me the roster of activities for the kids this year. Fly fishing, outdoor adventure, dancing, rock and roll academy, and life on the ranch. What is life on the ranch? So those kids um, are going to three different ranches and three different days where they get to just kind of experience what it's like to be a ranch hand and what it's like to take care of barn animals. It's really fun. It's pretty cool. Leah emphasized that a key aspect of the event is that all the kids' expenses are covered by the Sheridan Arts Foundation. We pay for everything. We pay for their lodging, their food, the restaurants, the experiences. We pay these mentors to spend the week with these kids. So it's a big, big undertaking for the Sheridan Arts Foundation, but it's really worth it. This growth is fostered by mentors from around the community who teach the kids in their field of expertise, whether that be Native American dance, fly fishing, or rock and roll. They create an environment where kids can feel comfortable making mistakes. To have a mentor who's going to help them to feel comfortable to take risks, to try new things, to find that love and passion, that's, you know, such a big part to the success of these mentorships. And then these kids get to take home these new skills that they never would have thought they would have had. I spoke with Sheridan Arts Foundation PR and Marketing Director Maggie Stevens about the overarching goals of the program. We're trying to create an environment where they feel comfortable taking risks, and in that environment learning that they can do that and gaining confidence. The goal is to make them feel like, hey, I can try new things, I can make mistakes, and that's okay, but they know that they can take those risks. And that's something we all can benefit from in in going out into the world. To conclude Wild West Fest, the kids performed a final set of rock and roll songs, as well as traditional Native American hoop dance at Elks Park. I'm KOTO reporter Grace Richards.
Mikelski is pushing back opening day at its bike park, as heavy snow and a chilly spring have delayed maintenance and preparation tasks. Crews have worked throughout the spring to shovel snow and clear bike trails, but high levels of snowmelt are continuing well into June, and the trails are muddy. Although the projected opening date was scheduled for June 17th, Telski is pushing back its targeted opening day to Saturday, June 24th. Director of Operations at Telski, Scott Pittinger, recognizes this may come as a disappointment to eager mountain bikers. But he adds Telski prioritizes safety and promises, quote, the wait will be well worth it. In a ranking compiled by U.S. News & World Report, residents of San Miguel County have the third longest life expectancy in the nation, clocking in at an average of 93.6 years. The ranking is drawn from data compiled by the University of Wisconsin's Public Health Program, which finds correlations between counties with long life expectancy and those with low levels of smoking and obesity, high employment and average incomes, low crime rates, and other social and environmental factors. San Miguel County's small population could skew the data, but there's certainly something about mountain communities across the West and longevity. Eight of the top 25 longest living counties in the U.S. are located here in Colorado. Earlier this week, Governor Jared Polis signed a bill into law which adds new protections for public school students from harassment and discrimination. Under the new law, school districts and other education providers have to provide information for students on how to report harassment or discrimination. Schools then have to put procedures in place for investigating those reports. The law also requires new school employees to complete training on harassment and discrimination every three years, starting when they're hired. This week marked the last opportunity for Polis to sign or veto bills passed by the state legislature this year. Any laws he didn't sign will become law without his signature. A new round of negotiations about sharing water from the Colorado River is set to kick off next week. KUNC's Alex Hager reports federal officials announced the new timeline. Hot on the heels of a new agreement for temporary water cutbacks in California, Arizona, and Nevada, states and the federal government will officially begin talks about more permanent guidelines set to go into effect in 2026. Colby Pellegrino is deputy manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. What we've done is wonderful and it's not enough. We need to meaningfully start changing the way that we're using water in this basin. Reclamation says this new timeline will allow the agency to publish its next draft of water sharing plans by the end of next year. A wet year in the West helped buy time for more talks, but permanent cuts are still needed in the face of climate change. I'm Alex Hager. As Pride Month kicks off, writer Christy Porter reflects on the LGBTQ plus history of Utah's Brigham Young University with student groups and their activism. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KRCL's Laura Jones and Rishon Leak spoke with writer Christy Porter to discuss Brigham Young's complex history of activism. Here's more. Now, Christy Porter from Salt Lake Magazine, thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. You have a great piece that's on stands now, Salt that's Lake right. Magazine, and it's about visibility 
in particular at BYU and, uh, you know, that's Brigham Young University. But uh, tell us about the activism in particular, because that's what it's about, your piece. Yeah. How far back do you trace it? I mean, so ooh, that's that, that's kind of a tough one. So I really starting out wanted to take a look at sort of the turn and the increase in visibility that yeah. started with the uh, honor code change in 2020, mm-hmm. right? Because I think a lot of queer students at BYU felt this freedom and then Absolutely. all of a sudden taken away. Okay, and so what happened for folks that don't know? Sure thing. So back in, I believe it was probably February 2020, um, BYU removed a section of its honor code that seemed to at one time explicitly banned, uh, you know, demonstration of homosexual behavior on campus. And when that happened, a lot of queer students saw it. They got excited. They felt yeah. free. That sounds exactly. it, it felt like a call to freedom. Right. I saw that and went. Somebody didn't edit something coming out of the church office building, right? And they're going to realize it in about a week or two. And it really kind of spurned a lot of, you know, excitement at first. And then when, you know, there was a CES letter that came along that letter later clarified that even though the more prescriptive language was no longer in the honor code, um, nothing has changed. <laughs> CES. Uh, church education system. So this is the kind of the governing body for uh, BYU, uh, BYU Hawaii, and BYU Idaho, and other church educational bodies for the LDS church specifically. For a fleeting moment, it felt like uh, I don't have to be ashamed. Unapologetically you. The theme of this year's Pride, unapologetic. Exactly. And kind of, you know, going along with that, there, there was this, you know, not you know, not an ex- non-existent, right, as I think some people might want to believe, you know, contingent of the student body at BYU who is LGBTQIA+, plus, you know, mm-hmm. and they were very visible and very upfront for, you know, the maybe not the first time, but maybe not to that scale ever. And because of that visibility, because of um, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing in mass these groups come together. I think it also emboldened kids who might not, well, kids, students who might not have been out yet or who well, y- might yeah. not have asked themselves those questions yet or felt safe to ask themselves those questions. Because doing so, you could lose your, your credits. Your, exactly. You could your lose your enrollment and yeah. be disenrolled. So I guess the question is, well, when when they had that, because I, I thought the same thing, when you see that removed for a hot second, you're like, oh, is the church coming to their senses and recognizing that all lives really, you know, we're going to jump on it, all lives matter. And so we're we're creating a safe place. So for students, was there any kind of backlash then? Because I was reading your article and it said like a lot of people were finally coming out and uh, being unapologetically them. But if the code didn't change, if they're holding hands like Jonathan was talking about with his husband, or if they're showing any affection to their to their significant other, are they could they be reported and, and thus kicked out of school again? I mean, unfortunately, with the way that the honor code office at BYU works, we're totally reliant on you know word mm-hmm. of mouth stories from students, mm-hmm. and and some students are very open about yeah. their experiences with the honor code. And for anybody who wants to know like more details about like some of those experiences, there used to be an Instagram honor code stories. Mm-hmm. Um, that specifically, that's a lot of what they did is they took anonymous confessions from students, you know, telling about their honor code experiences. But as a journalist, like, it's a private institution. Absolutely. They're not handing that info no. to me. They're but not giving me those numbers. <laughs> the population down there, student body, you do a great snapshot. There's like, whoa, 34,000 
yeah. round numbers, students. And you actually get some data on sexual orientation. Yeah. So, I mean, and a lot of this data has been collected by, you know, organizations within BYU. And, you know, for the first time, some of these, you know, professors and stuff are allowed to ask these questions. Like, how many queer students do we have? How many, you know, students have had, you know, homosexual experiences or, or you know, consider themselves, you know, some gender other than strictly male or female? So, uh, yeah, it's these kids are here, <laughs> right? Uh, sorry, students. They're honestly, I'm so impressed by, you know, the students that I talk to and the kind of organizing they're doing. And I think coming out of uh, that 2020 decision, what you really see is not like this defeat. They're not this like, they didn't pull back. They didn't go back into hiding. You know, they didn't, the term that I got a lot was hush hush, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to 2020, what a lot of the students told me was it was all very hush hush. Um, but then after that, they're like, well, I'm out. The cat's out of the bag, right? Yeah. Or the, the closet I, door was yeah, right. kicked, kicked open. So, so instead, you see this sort of surge in, in student groups. So we saw BYU Pride Forum that later became uh, Cougar Pride Center. We saw Rainbow Collective Forum and uh, these other groups, you know, gain, you know, the USGA who's been, you know, they've been, I think they're the longest running. They've been there for over a decade, I think, at this point. But, um, but yeah, so instead of getting, you know, scared, uh, they started organizing. And I think that's sort of what drove me deeper into the history to see, you know, what has this looked like in the past? And pretty much the the thing that I could uh, maybe connect it to the most was, um, to me, in spirit felt very similarly, was student protests back in the late 60s and early 70s to get black athletes uh, represented at BYU. Um, so that was sort of... And they've got the black menaces on campus right. today and it, at there's, BYU. There's this fantastic uh, you know, intersectional support that we're seeing. Um, black menaces led a, uh, a, a protest. It was part of a nationwide protest, Strike Out Queer Phobia, which is specifically trying to get rid of the uh, title, the nine exemptions that mm-hmm. religious institutions have. So essentially it's the loophole within Title Nine, which, you know, all schools that receive government funding have to follow. But if you are a religious institution, you basically have freedom to discriminate as your religion allows. Yeah. So they are trying to shore up those those exemptions. So religious institutions like BYU who receive government funding have to make sure that all of their students have the same resources extended to them, that, you know, your marginalized students are, you know, allowed to come to school at operating at the same level and on the same footing as other students. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clear skies tonight with a low near 40 degrees. Saturday brings increasing clouds throughout the day with storms developing in the afternoon and a high near 65 degrees. Saturday night should see relative calm with partly cloudy skies and a low near 40. Sunday brings mostly sunny skies with a high near 70 degrees and a gentle breeze. A slight chance of showers could develop in the afternoon and continue into Sunday night when the low is near 40. This has been the news for Friday, June 9th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.